So if you have not already done so, I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And I begin this morning with apologies to Charles Dickinson. He was the best of men. He was the worst of men. He was a man of wealth and excess. He was a man of poverty and sickness. He was a man of patient, enduring faith. He was a man of shallow faith and self-aggrandizement. He was a man of apparent light. He was a man of apparent darkness. It was the spring of false hope. It was the spring of true dependency. He had everything he wanted and more. He had nothing but abject poverty. He was on his way direct to heaven. He was going direct the other way. Jesus tells us in this parable a tale of two men. Uh, a tale of two men who were at the polar opposites of the socioeconomic scale. But I want you to remember today, this parable is more of, than a parable about a story about that what goes around comes around. It's more than a, a story of reward. This parable is a parable that's designed to remind us, as it was designed to remind its original hearers, of the importance of truly following God's prescribed principles that are clearly laid out in His Word. It's a story that's going to challenge each of us to actually look and see those around us and to do what we can to be people of compassion. Last week, we saw the concept of lostness as we looked at the lost sheep, the lost coin, and I would say the lost sons, because as we learned last week, both were lost. After that parable, Jesus told another parable that is one of the most confusing in the New Testament. Your heading will say the shrewd manager. I don't think he was as shrewd as he was dishonest. And, and Jesus uses this very negative parable to make a very positive point. And that is, we who live here on this earth should be wise in how we use everything that God has given us so that we do all that we can to introduce others to the kingdom. That story, Jesus made a point in that story at the very end, and he said, you can't serve two masters. He said, you'll, you'll either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he finishes by saying, you can't serve God and money. And Luke tells us at the end of that chapter in, verse, in chapter 15 and verse 14, he, or chapter 16 and verse 14, he tells us that the Pharisees who loved money heard this and sneered at Jesus. They kind of figured they had it down. They knew, they thought that they were walking the tightrope of heaven, all the things that they wanted and still getting into God's kingdom as well. So to drive home the point about not serving God and money, Jesus tells another parable. This is a, a parable that is unique. It has a feature that no other parable in the New Testament has. There is actually someone with a proper name in this parable. 
Lazarus. We'll learn about him in a minute. The name Lazarus has a unique Hebrew equivalent. The Hebrew equivalent is Eliezer, which means the one God helps. Now, it's possible that there really was a Lazarus. But it's possible that Jesus used this name to catch attention and to draw attention to the reality of the one who God helps. Because in that culture, the poor were conveniently invisible to everyone else. I'm going to use the name Lazarus here as a proper name, but every time you hear it, think about the one who God helps. We're going to walk through this parable. We're going to make some observations. But I want you along the way to be thinking of this question. How do I display in actions that I see and have compassion for all of those around me? How do I display in actions that I see and have compassion for all those around me? So Jesus begins. We've read the passage, and there he starts with a portrait of two men. The first man is a rich man, very wealthy man. And in fact, three of the details Jesus gives us tell us how wealthy he was. First, he was dressed in purple. Uh, purple was a cloth color of great wealth. Uh, purple cloth was not natural. Uh, there weren't purple sheep. So if he was dressed in purple, it meant that he had to have that cloth imported. In the Roman world, one of the ways that purple was made was there were marine snails that were collected, thousand upon thousands of marine snails collected out of the Mediterranean. They were put in these large vats and they were boiled. And out of that process of boiling those snails, uh, a, they could extract a, blue, a purple dye and then dye the cloth. You know, this was a long, smelly, tedious, difficult process. And therefore, purple was extremely expensive. And this guy had purple garments. And then Jesus says he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, I kind of think that Jesus kind of had a wink when he said that. And here's why. Linen was the term used for undergarments. So he was dressed in purple and he had the finest underwear. 800 thread count, Egyptian cotton. Nothing but the finest for this guy. I mean, he was comfortable all the way down. And then he says something else about him. He lived in luxury every day. Now, that, kind, that translation kind of misses the point. In fact, if you have the English Standard Version, it says he feasted sumptuously every day. And that's the concept behind the word luxury. He lacked nothing. Every day was a feast. Every day was a spread uh, you get the idea in the word feast that he didn't feast alone. There were people that wanted to be in this guy's orbit. There were people that wanted him to notice that. It may have been that it was, wasn't just him feasting. It was a feast for all of the well-healed. 
here's this man living in grand fashion, making sure everybody knew he was wealthier than wealthy. It was the ultimate in image management. But there was another man. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. At his gate was laid the one who God helps. His life didn't look like the one who God helps at that moment. We know that Lazarus was sickly. Notice how it says it. Lazarus was laid at his gate. Most likely, friends of Lazarus would take him and carry him and lay him at the gate. It was kind of their cry for help. It was a word picture for need. Lazarus didn't have the strength to go to the gate. They laid him at the gate. They laid him at the gate. So when the rich man came and went in his gold-plated chariot, every time he came through and went in, there was Lazarus laying there. When his friends came for dinner to the big feast, there was Lazarus laying there. This beggar named Lazarus was just laying there. And we're told he was covered with sores. He was very, very sickly. And all Lazarus did was he longed to just get a few scraps from the rich man's table. Lazarus laid there every day and he could smell the roasted calf, the fatted calf as it's being roasted on the spit. And that smell, I mean, you've done it. We walk along the neighborhood and I'll go, hmm, somebody's barbecuing, you know. Uh, the next day it was the lamb and it was the roasted vegetables and, and he just longed for just a scrap of food. And Jesus gives us one more detail. One more detail to actually show us the failure of the rich man. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. In the ancient Near East, you did not have dogs for pets. You had dogs for guard dogs, or you had dogs that just roamed the street. We don't know which one it was, whether it was the rich man's guard dogs or whether it was dogs that roamed the street. But we do know this. Over the years, they've discovered that saliva in dogs has medicinal properties. So when the rich man forgot Lazarus, even the dogs had more compassion on him and would come and lick his sores to try to provide some comfort. I hope for just a minute right now you're feeling really uncomfortable. Not because of the grotesqueness of the story, which is enough, but just thinking of these opposites, thinking of the neglect. I know it made me uncomfortable. You see, every day this man who had everything he wanted and more went in and out of his gate on daily business and ignored the need literally at his doorstep. Every day, people of means who wanted to be in his orbit went in and out of his gate and ignored the need that was at his doorstep. Lazarus lay there sick, dying, and starving, and nobody noticed. Remember our key question today. How do I display in actions that I see and have compassion for all those around me. And I would say sometimes it's easier to speak of compassion than it is to practice it. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Lazarus dies, there's no funeral. There's nobody weeping for him. He dies and the angels carry him to Abraham's side. By the way, this description here, Abraham's side, Hades, 
Jesus is using what was standard Jewish lore of the time about what maybe it looked like in the afterlife. This isn't necessarily a teaching on heaven and hell as much as he's using images and stories that the people knew to make a deeper point. Don't see this as a statement from Jesus that all poor people go to heaven and all rich people go to hell. That is not biblical. This is a point. Uh, this is not a point about God being against wealth. God is not against wealth. Look carefully at the mindset here. This is a parable about spiritual priorities. It's a parable about who do we serve right now. Jesus, drawing from that folklore, helps the audience begin to see this. Now, the rich man also died and he was buried. In that sentence, there's a lot said. That means the rich man was rich enough to have a, a, a burial area carved out of stone. Remember when Jesus died, it was Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea who had a, a tomb that he had already carved out. So this rich man was rich enough to have a burial. We learn later he had five brothers. There was a there was a procession. There was weeping. They hired mourners. His death was mourned. And he wakes up and finds himself in the underworld, in Hades. Using language of the day, Jesus is saying he wakes up as far from God as possible. But somehow he can look across this chasm and he sees Abraham. And he sees Lazarus seated at the place of honor. All of a sudden, their circumstances are reversed. And these next few words are very important. He looks up, he's in torment, he sees Abraham, and he calls to him, Father Abraham. That indicates that this man was a fellow Israelite. That indicates that he recognized who Abraham was. He knew the role that Abraham played in, in the life and the history of his nation. How is it that a descendant of Abraham, one who's part of God's chosen people, ends up in the afterlife as far from God as possible? It's not answered, but your original hearers are going, whoa, that's too much. You see, the theology of the day was wealth is a sign of God's blessing. And only good things happen to good people. The theology of the day was Lazarus is where he is because somewhere in his life or in his family tree, there is sin that has to be paid for. Jesus is going to blow that and he keeps blowing that out of the water. But note next what he says, Father Abraham, have pity, have mercy on me. Father Abraham, I had mercy on nobody else, but have mercy on me. And look at what he says. Send Lazarus. He actually knew Lazarus' name? He knew who he was? And not only that, he still sees Lazarus as lesser than him one whose station in life is to serve him send Lazarus to me I think one of the most powerful and one of the most overlooked realities of this parable is the fact that Lazarus never utters a word Lazarus is a better man than I am 
I could be like, oh yeah, dude, I got your relief right here. You know? Uh, oh, you want, oh wait, you want some of this? Oh, it's good. Oh, mmm. It's cool and it's refreshing. You want a little of this? I got it right here. But Lazarus doesn't say a thing. He leaves it up to God's representative, Abraham, to take care of. I think it's important that we learn this balance. When to act and when to wait on God. I think it's so important that we learn that balance. Abraham's point, his response is very clear and very subtle. Abraham replies, son, remember, remember, remember that time you had everything? <laughs> remember in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And oh, by the way, just in case you were wondering, you may not have noticed there's this great chasm and there's no bridge. You, we can't go to you and you can't come to us. Remember when Jesus said you can't serve God and money? The rich man served money, not God. The rich man served himself, didn't care about Lazarus and his pain and agony and poverty. In some way, Lazarus only had God upon whom he could depend. The man's not done yet. Remember, he's a wealthy man. He's used to negotiating. He's used to working the deal. He's used to getting it figured out. So he responds, well, then I beg you. Again, here's a person that didn't care about a beggar, and now he's begging. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus. There's that word again. You got Lazarus up there. He's not doing anything. You know, he's here to serve me. I, I'm the important one. Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. Let him warn them because I want them to be where he is and send him. Abraham replies, very interestingly, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have all the data they need. They have all the information they need to know and to act on truth. There's an observation for you. God has already given us all the information we need to make a decision to love and serve him. We already have all the information we need. It's right here in this book. We have all the data we need to serve him. The, the problem is that the rich man already had all the information as well as anybody else, and he chose to ignore it. He chose to ignore the law of the Sabbath. He feasted every single day. He didn't give his servants a day off, a day of rest. He didn't take a day of rest. Days are burning, lights are burning. We got to get stuff done. We got to, he didn't give them any time. He ignored the command in Leviticus 19.18 to love his neighbor, Lazarus, as himself. He ignored God's command in Deuteronomy 15.11 that says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, be open-handed to your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. 
He chose to completely ignore the wisdom of Solomon in the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. His actions dishonored his God. I could go on. I'll give you one more. Proverbs 22, 9, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. He did none of that. He ignored God. No doubt his family ignored God. And now it's too late, but he tries again. Oh, I got an idea, Abraham, because I got lots of ideas because I'm wealthy and that should matter. No, Father Abraham, verse 30. If someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't accept all the data they already have, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Jesus here is kind of poking at the Pharisees and at a group called the Sadducees. You see, the Pharisees always wanted a sign. He feeds 5,000 men plus women, children with five loaves and two fishes. And they go, show us a sign. (laughs) Yeah, they're always asking for a sign. And the Sadducees didn't believe there was a resurrection anyway. And so he's kind of poking at him, and and Abraham is saying, look, if they're not willing to listen to the information they have, then even the most amazing sign on the planet isn't going to convince them. Now, something to bear in mind. The original hearers would not be thinking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he hasn't made that part of his public teaching at this point. But what he does is he takes the most amazing sign any of them could ever imagine, And he simply says, if you're not willing to look at the clear teaching of God's word, namely Moses and the prophets, you're not going to respond to any sign. The teaching should be enough. But by the way, if you go to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, Jesus gives them that sign. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the grave three days. And they were so steeped in their disbelief that their response was to gather together to huddle up and to figure out how they were going to kill Jesus. This parable, it's not a a parable to give us a description of heaven and hell. It's not a parable to teach some theology of payback. It's a parable to pull us all short and say, am I listening to and responding to the word of God in my daily life. Let me leave you with a few final thoughts. When you hear or read God's word, take it seriously. Think about it. The psalmist says in Psalm 1 that he meditates on the word of God day and night. Uh, That word meditate is an agricultural term there. It means to chew the cud. He's just letting it mull over in his head. Do you think about God's word? Do you you run across a verse and just kind of hang on to it and just kind of let it roll around? When we're, you know, the late Eugene Peterson used to say, for many of us, church is like going to the ice cream parlor. (laughs) I recommend Kimmer's, but anyway, for many of us, church is like going to the ice cream parlor. We go down to the ice cream parlor and, you know, we get our order. Mine the other night was uh, English Heath toffee and then my favorite Jamocha all together there. And I ate it and I enjoyed it. And when I was done, I threw the cup into the garbage 
And it only made a little bit of difference in my life. But it didn't change me. And sometimes we treat God's word that way. I read it, oh, that's really good. And then we just go do our own thing. When you hear or read, read God's word, take it seriously. Another thing to remember, God is not against wealth. There are clear verses, of, I think of the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, and, and he says, command those who are rich to be rich in good deeds, to not depend on their wealth, but to use it wisely. God's not against wealth, but he is against stinginess. He wants us to be generous. The old catchphrase is you can't outgive God, and that is so true. Third thing, when God changes my heart, it will be seen in my actions. Talk is cheap. You can talk all you want about how good you are. I, I bet you when they feasted, the rich man and his friends talked about how good they were, how generous. Why, I went down to the temple the other day and I took an entire bag of gold and I gave it. I only have 499 bags of gold left, but boy, I let that one go. I'm going to tell you, that cost me a lot. I am so generous. Oh, I'm going to heaven. Actions count. When God changes your heart, it will be seen in your actions. And then I learned this from Lazarus. There is an amazing strength in quiet dependence upon God, even in difficult circumstances. I think of people that Charlene and I have known over the years uh, who have gone on to glory, who had very difficult circumstances, and, and, and they were just dependent upon God through those times. You know, our son... His middle name is Parker, named after our dear, dear friends, Headley and Ava Parker. And I remember, and I've told you this before, I'm sure, when Ava was going through cancer and, and, and all, she would write us these letters back in the day when we actually wrote letters. She had really good penmanship. And uh, she would write these letters. And in one point, she would talk about the pain, the pain of the chemo, the pain of the cancer and the struggle. And the very next paragraph, she was talking about how good God was and, and how she was longing to see him. And, and in the midst of all of that, she and her husband were actually researching and planning and trusting God that maybe they could take a trip to the outback in Australia. They had already been to Ireland and gotten and then Scotland and Ireland, but they were looking to go to the outback. And, and there was just this dependence upon God that whatever happened, he was sovereign. We trust him. We don't always understand the struggles, but we lean into him. There is an amazing strength in quiet dependence upon God, even in difficult circumstances. We have a tale of two men. On earth, it seemed like the rich man had it going on. And it seemed like Lazarus was really at the bottom of the bottom. But in reality, in God's economy, our dependence upon him is far more valuable than our bank account. Our dependence upon him is far more valuable than what's in our closet. Our dependence upon him is far more valuable than what's in our garage. Upon whom do you depend today? Are your actions showing that you are compassionate to those around you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for using it to pull me up short. Thank you for 
opening our eyes to the fact that it's really your word that matters. We have Moses, we have the prophets, and we have the New Testament, we have the, the completed text, we have all the information we need to make decisions for you. It's a matter of having a want to and doing it. And I pray, Lord, that today we would take a step back, we would look at what we're placing value on, and we would put it through the grid of what you place value on. And may we change to be who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.